Welcome to Passengers Cast. That's right. Oh, with the new yeah. movie Passengers, sir, to be an, an incredible hit coming out, we've decided to just talk only Passengers, all, all fucking cast. Jennifer Lawrence, Chris Pratt, Michael Sheen the Robot, nobody else. Liam, I don't know about you, but I'm a huge fan of J-Law. I think she just tells it like it is. Especially when she's racist or homophobic or just a monster. Because she's an actual monster. Yeah, and Chris Pratt, he's all up on that god shit. And like you uh, like you know me, Liam, I'm mm. super up on the god shit. Yeah, they're definitely fucking both in and behind the scenes. I'm calling it now. Really? Anyways. Do you think there's any credence to that? Uh, okay. That so feels like hearsay. This is media majors. I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent. It's definitely hearsay. It's more of like, I don't want it to happen because I love Chris Pratt and Anna Ferris together. Yeah. And I just hope it's not happening, but I'm getting Mr. and Mrs. Smith vibes. Yeah, yeah, that There have been, they, I will admit, there have been a couple of stills of them on the red carpet and they yeah. are like awfully close and making some very passionate eye contact but this isn't passengers because that movie's gonna fucking bomb um yeah fuck passengers fuck jennifer lawrence she's a monster this is media majors this is a storytelling podcast about major media i'm liam senior and i tell stories about movies and television and i'm tom lockney and i tell stories from internet culture and video games and yeah i guess we can just start it's me i start what yeah Liam's going first this I'm week. I'm going first today. It literally threw me off. Uh, I'm, I have to say, I'm in a bit of a great mood, guys. I just finished my scholastic classings, yep. and we'll never have to go into a classroom again. So I thought, why not do, you know, last week we had such an intense, you know, very thought-provoking episode, I think. So I decided to have a little bit of fun. Yeah, make this one real stupid for everybody. This one's called The Film That Killed John Wayne. What? <laughs> yes. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I know so much about John Wayne, and I know nothing about his death. Oh, wow. You're going to love this, then. Yeah. Marion Mitchell Morrison, born Marion Roberts Morrison, born May 26, 1907, known professionally as John Wayne. That's right, everyone. His real name is Marion Mitchell Morrison. Oh, yeah. He was an American actor, director, and producer. Nicknamed the Duke, he was one of the most famous people to come out of Hollywood in its hate in its like original days. Yeah. Uh, he starred in a bunch of pictures in really small roles and background extras. You can actually see him uh, in a bunch of, of small roles with, I believe, like at one point, a Marilyn Monroe before she was Marilyn Monroe. Wow. Um, both as like total one-line speaking parts in movies. Media Majors cast, Marilyn Monroe episode. Episode six. He starred in the 1939 Western Stagecoach, Stagecoach, directed by John Ford, the king of Western films, who would go on to use John Wayne in tons of his movies. And after Stagecoach, he was a immediate star. He played a gunslinger. People fell head over heels for him. Yeah, I mean, he had, I, I don't know a ton about this guy, but I know that 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 he just had this legendary swagger. I've seen all the. I've seen the. Fill your hand, you suck. 
Son of a bitch! He was basically one of the first, like, American icons. I mean, he was synonymous with cowboys, synonymous with Old West. He became America. He even he was so famous that he got into a legal battle with duke university because of his nickname that rules that's so great he only won one academy award it was for the 1970 western true grit and a lot of people say that it was one of those you we need to give you this award because you deserved it he was also a couple months before his death awarded with a congressional gold medal yeah. he was one of the greatest yeah everybody loved and him and in 1956, he played Genghis Khan in a Dick Powell movie. What? Oh, Tom, yes. Full-on brown face. Oh, no, no, no. Full-on yellow face, my friend. Oh, Christ. Now let's talk about our antagonist. Howard Robert Hughes, sorry, Howard Robard Hughes Jr., born Christmas Eve, 1905, was an American entrepreneur. He's played by Leo in The Aviator. He was known yeah. during his life as one of the most financially successful individuals in the world. He made it, but a lot of people don't know this, he was also a film producer. He later in life uh, basically went super fucking crazy because they didn't know how to diagnose mental illness back then and led a reclusive lifestyle that was worsened by both OCD and a chronic pain from a plane crash. Oh, wow. But he made a lot of big budget and often very controversial films. We kind of weirdly have him to thank for a lot of the violence that we're able to see in cinema because he was one of the first people to be like, no, we can use violence as a storytelling medium. Cool. Um, never wrote anything, but produced, always like got the right people in the room together. He would make films such as The Racket, Hell's Angels, the original Scarface that the oh, wow. modern shitty Scarface is based off of, yeah. and The Outlaw. He also built a ton of fucking awesome planes. I mean, he was just like one of the best businessmen knew how to succeed in everything. Towards the end of his life, Howard Hughes, a billionaire tycoon, had become a recluse, locked in the penthouse suite at his Xanadu Princess Resort Hotel in the Bahamas. That's how rich he was. Hughes would sit for hours in his darkened bedroom, naked except for a pink hotel napkin, I hope on his penis, eating nothing but chocolate bars and chicken, surrounded by dozens of Kleenex boxes that he would continuously stack and rearrange. So he's into rituals. And another one of his big obsessions was that he would constantly watch two movies over and over again. The first was his favorite film, Ice Station Zebra, a Rock Hudson tense spy thriller set in the Arctic. He would watch that movie over 150 times. Wow. The second one was a movie called The Conqueror. It was about Genghis Khan, Tom. See, he had financed that movie himself, produced it, and now grown to utterly detest it. He hate-watched this shit. Wow. He spent millions buying That's up brutal. every single print on the planet to ensure that no one would see it. And he would view it every night before going to bed. He would make his personal projectionist wear a blindfold so that only Howard Hughes could watch the screen. This this shit is like how uh, priests like flagellate themselves, you know, to, mm -hmm. to knock all the sin out of their body. Well, Tom, there was a lot of fucking sin in this movie. Awesome. I love sin. The dramatic... I, lo I love sin. We're two, we're two boys full of sin. The film was The Conqueror, the dramatic tale of... And I'm going to butcher this. Temujin? Temujin? Uh, the 20th century Mongol warlord and his rise to power to become Genghis Khan. 
Released in 1956, it was intended to be Hughes' cinematic masterpiece. Aren't the aren't the messes always the ones that are supposed to be the heroes? A sweeping, rousing, old-school Hollywood historical epic, packed with windswept action and swooning passion. You know, <laughs> Genghis Khan. Yeah. Classic romantic Genghis Khan. It would star two Oscar-winning leads at the apex of their careers. It would be shot in panoramic cinemascope and technicolor. It would cost over $6 million. Today, that would be a budget of about $50 million. So, like, now, reasonable but expensive. Back then, way too expensive. But he produced it. And I actually, he produced it with the director, which is interesting. And hmm. by absolutely every conceivable metric, financially, critically, historically, ethically, and even body count. Wait, what? It would become, it would become to be known as one of the biggest disasters in cinematic history. Tom, this movie has a body count. Flawed from the outset, it would be known as one of the most grossly miscast films of all time. Largely, it turned out due to a waste paper bin. The script had originally been written for Marlon Brando. Still not good casting. But the rising star of On the Waterfront had passed, uh, wisely citing that he had uh, contractual obligations elsewhere. But actually, he was like, I'm white and should not be playing Genghis Khan. And then they were like, who is going to have the chops to play Genghis Khan? It was supposed to be Brando. Like, we had to have gotten Brando. Step forward to everyone's surprise, John Wayne. At the peak of his career, John Wayne would go on to make The Searchers in the same, same year. The Searchers is maybe the greatest Western ever made. He needed to fill a picture deal with RKO Pictures, which was Howard Hughes's uh, gigantic film company. A lot. So just to explain, back in the days of the old old school film production, uh, actors were owned by production companies. They were owned by the studio, and they would have deals that would they would have to do X amount of pictures. Um, it's not really done that way today because uh, actors don't actually sell movies. The promise of franchise and um, established IPs, in intellectual properties, uh, are now how they make movies. Wayne was summoned to the office of one of the assigned directors, Dick Powell, again, also owned by the production companies. And Dick Powell had thrown the Genghis Khan script in the trash because they couldn't get Brando. And he was like, without Brando, I don't think we should do this. I'll have to break it to Howard somehow. And just throws it away. So Pal goes out for, like, a smoke break or whatever, and on his return, he found that John Wayne had taken the screenplay out of the trash and had already started reading it. Yeah, Pal didn't want to make the movie. Um, even getting Brando was kind of like he was still hesitant because it said it was he rejected it for sounding absurd. But he saw that John Wayne was enthusiastically reading out lines, and Pal pleaded, please don't do this movie, John. <laughs> Please don't do this John, movie. John, I'm, John, I'm fucking begging you, John. Please, John, this is such a bad idea. Well, John Wayne, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt again, no, but no, John no. Wayne was not sensitive, was not, uh, I, I don't know, was he, he was like racist, kind no, of? not really. Oh, no, not at all. I, I, like, he was in Westerns, which are historically kind of a, a racist genre. So, and, and... yes, but I think that people forget that the parameter for racism back then was much different. So I would say that John Wayne was probably more typical of his time. He actually, um, 
I, I, I did a little research on this. I wasn't going to add it in, but it's pretty interesting. He was one of the few people to, like, go from Republican candidate to Democrat candidate, like, as the years went on, because he was mm. like, well, I liked what this candidate says, but eight years later, I like what this Democratic candidate says, and I'm not usually a Democrat. So I think he was actually quite sensitive to, to that, but... Yeah, I'll say, I'll say two things. Uh, uh, historical answer is not a moral one. Mm. And... Mm-mm. I, 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 as far as like, if you can get past the horrible racism, a lot of people will say this movie's really racist, but there's a good part. I try to stay away from butt criticisms and stick to and. This movie is really racist, and it's got this really good part in it. Yeah. Um, and as we'll, as we'll learn, John Wayne would later be super embarrassed by some of the choices. Okay continue so luckily for pal this casting decision presented only two problems how john wayne would look and how john wayne would sound the first issue was solved with what was deemed politically correct at the time and is in fact not the worst case of yellow face i've seen in a movie that would go to the um charlie chan picks with robert sir robert something as the asian guy in it that was bad <laughs> um with this one they did the age-old hollywood tradition by applying a thick coat of yellow face, shaving his eyebrows off, and adding fake eyelids and rubber bands glued to the top of his head with spirit gum to pull oh. the corners of his eyes in a slant. Oh, and then God. he grew his own Fu Manchu. Jesus Christ. I mean, how could you not be Mongolian? Yucca do. His performance, however, would prove more problematic, especially Uh-oh. when confronted with the script. Writer Oscar Millard had wanted an archaic flourish to the dialogue. I'm not going to read some of these lines out loud because they want it. They wrote it with an accent. So it was oh, not. Was it like, were they doing like in- English? No, no. More like, I think they actually researched. And then basically what they wanted to do was combine real Mongolian patois with like that of a Shakespeare foreign character. So again, it's weird how like this very racist movie was made with the best intentions from its very racist crew and star and is very racist. Yeah. The best intentions of mice and men are often deeply, profoundly, systemically racist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Basically, oh, they tr- and Wayne tried to do, he tried to imitate the accent, but by the second uh, scene of shooting, they dropped the accent entirely and just let him talk in his famous cowboy swagger because it was too hard to understand him. And also they were like, yikes, this was a bad idea. That would be like that would be like if in every single anime dub the the English voice actors tried to speak in like a Japanese accent. It would just be awful. Or like how when they put Kenji on in a movie, they would make him talk with an Asian accent. But they don't do that. We don't live in a world where they do that. Hi, I've never seen any of the hangovers. <laughs> Wayne himself would tell Miller during filming you got to do something about these lines. I can't read them, but it was too late. What was intended as a, ser- a serious-minded epic had instantly become an unintentional comedy. As Millard later explained in an 81 interview, mindful of the fact that my story was nothing more than a tarted-up western, I thought this would give it a certain uh, cachet. I left no lully unpainted. I w- it was a mistake I've never repeated. So this movie was really racist. I don't think I've mentioned that yet. <laughs> and yet it was not the only mistake by any means nor an idol- isolated casting misstep for example the tartar woman in question Bortide the bride who Wayne's uh, Genghis Khan steals away which precipitates the war would be played by Susan Hayward a celebrated actress to be sure she was a good actress and she would win an Oscar for her acting two years later 
but her red permed hair and milky Irish Swedish complexion made it hard to believe she was Mongolian. <laughs> what gave it away? Then again, no one else was either. The entire film boasts just two people of Asian descent, and only one of them has a line of dialogue. Mm. Every other actor involved, from cowboy luminaries like Lee Van Cleef and John Hoyt, to TV pa- favorites like Pedro Armadura- Armanderis and Thomas Gomez, were simply dunked in the same bucket of yellow face. Agnes Moorhead, the actress best known as Endora on Bewitched, is almost unrecognizable as Genghis Khan's mother because of how much makeup they put on her. She was only seven years older than John Wayne, and they just... Ugh. And as one reviewer put it, not even a dental hygienist could find authentic tartar in this movie. Which is still a racist thing to say, film reviewer! Oh my god, if you lived in the 50s and were white, you were racist. End of story. (laughs) <laughs> I take back all that of-the-time bullshit I said before. Fuck that. It didn't matter anyway, because by the time filming began in May of 54, any nod to authenticity had gone out the window. Continuing the cowboy theme, for example, Genghis is shown wearing a bandolier strap in several scenes. Genghis Khan, w- world-renowned sharpshooter. Uh, I love his quote, uh, I shot first, you bastard. Genghis <laughs> Khan. Then there's an entirely pointless dancing scene and seven minutes long of a dusky Mongolian beauty cavorting for Khan and his, Khan and his allies. Uh, of course, the beauty is dressed in a red strip nylon body stocking with a pointy sequin hat and fluffy feathers on her fingertips. Jesus Christ. So they, they couldn't get literally anything right. Wow. The location also did not help. The nascent Cold War meant that filming on the actual grasslands of the Mongol steppe was out of the question. So they actually wanted to film in Mongolia, but Cold War wouldn't allow it. Okay. Okay. Um, so Dick Powell had instead cho- chosen Utah's Escalante Valley as a substitute, one of the most recognizable landscapes and markably different from the Gobi Desert. So again, he's like, all right, we can't shoot in the fields of Mongolia. We're going to shoot in a desert that looks more like Mongolia. Native Amer- Na- uh, indigenous Americans from nearby reservations were brought in to portray the battalions of horseback warriors, while Texas Longhorn steers played the part of oxen. But Powell then further confounded the visuals' confusion by filming almost everything in exactly the same place, Snow Canyon, resulting in several scenes where Genghis and his sidekick Jamuga, again, I apologize, I'm totally butchering these names, ride some great distance and wearily dismount in exactly the same place that they started. By this point, however, the production was cantering headlong towards the abyss anyways. Delays in production meant much of filming had to take place in the height of summer and the punishing 120-degree heat of the desert. Several fights broke out on set. For Wayne, already confused by the dialogue, the heat was unbearable. Having decided to take the role very seriously, he embarked on a crash diet and was taking four tablets of high-strength amphetamine a day. Dude was fucking drugged! Dude, that's scary, man. Amphetamines... Back when amphetamines were basically Skittles. Like, that's how they were marketed as. Yeah. Uppers, downers. All-arounders. Lefters, riders. To the skyers. And then things started to get a little surreal. A little surreal. A dancing bear appeared in the scene. Lee Van Cleef was dancing shirtless a strange jig. At some point, a distinctly non-indigenous black panther, the animal, was shipped to liven up the background in one of the, th- one of the scenes. And then it attacked Suzanne Hayward, attempting to take a bite out of her arm. Jesus Christ. She was fine. Oh, thank God. And then in June, the location was hit with an unprecedented downpour, causing a flash flood that demolished the set 
stampeded a ton of the horses, and came within 20 seconds of wiping out the entire cast. Such bad omens would prove all too portentous. The movie would have a lot of bad omens. <laughs> By the time The Conqueror hit U.S. cinemas on March 28th, 56, it had already suffered a slaughtering of its own by the hands of the critics. It n never wanes, but it bores, wrote Moira, Moira Walsh in the American Magazine, questioning how Genghis Khan, the brutal and cunning leader of the largest empire in, the, in world history, could have been portrayed as a lovelorn sap who can't understand why the woman he just kidnapped doesn't immediately fall for him. As the New York Times review concluded, the facts appeared to have been lost in the technicolored cloud of charging horsemen, childish dialogue, and rudimentary romance. Even in the 50s, several observers lamented the film's numerous scenes of rape, where Genghis slaps, demeans, and then forces himself on people several times. I stole you. I will keep you. Before the sun sets, you will come willing willingly into my arms, he declares, smacking her around a little. Historical sources record that Genghis Khan and his betrothed were just that, betrothed, and were married when he was nine and she was ten. Uh, Genghis Khan will later go on to rape a bunch of people yeah. and definitely fuck up the gene pool of um, Asia for literally ever. Wait, there's some crazy statistic that like, like two to four percent of the world's population is directly related to Genghis Khan because he was, he is maybe the world's most prolific rapist, which is just petrifying. Absolutely petrifying. But what, but what a lot of people had problems with is, yes, he was awful, but you're projecting all of his awfulness onto the one person that he wasn't that awful to, when they should have been actually, like, doing an accurate historical Well, and presumably, presumably it was like, oh, well, he's not that bad. She'll come around, and, and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, the, the morals of the, the moral compass of, of rape on the film, I'm sure, was, was like you yeah, chucked it in the Bermuda Triangle. Speaking of moral compasses, other reviewers wondered why Pal had also crowbarred a ton of religious imagery into the final cut. In one of the movie's more bizarre scenes, Wayne climbs a hill and falls to his knees to offer a prayer. Send me men, he begs. Gen Genghis Khan wasn't a Christian. Uh, or there's the scene where he's captured by the Tartars and paraded, tar tartars? And paraded through the streets, strapped Christ-like to a block of wood. Oh. They, uh, one LA Times reviewer called it history's most improbable piece of casting, unless Mickey Rooney were to play Jesus in King of Kings. Mickey Rooney would later go on to be even more racist in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Either way, the film would prove a commercial disaster, even piggybacking on Wayne's other 1960s role, Ethan Edwards from The Searchers, the greatest performance in American cinema for a Western, yeah. did not save The con uh, Conqueror, only earning $4 million in the U.S., so a little more than half of its budget. Wayne himself made a personal plea to hold the premiere in Moscow as a peace gesture and cultural tribute to the ancestors of, the, of modern Russia. So like I said, he was like... He wasn't racist, but he was not sensitive, I think is the best way to, to say what he was. Well, that can still be racist. Yeah, no, but he, all right, let me rephrase that. He wasn't aggressively racist. He was not sensitive. He wasn't attacking people in the streets. And it's sad that we have to use that as a qualifier. However, the real repercussions of the film's production would only emerge in years to come. You see, in 1953, before they shot the movie... Um, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission had tested 11 nuclear weapons at the Yucca Flats in Nevada, including two exceptionally dirty above-ground tests with high degrees of fallout. Huge clouds of radioactive dust were blown into the atmosphere before floating downwind and accumulating in the funnel of Snow Canyon. 
exactly where the Conqueror was shot a year later. Oh. Despite this knowledge, Wayne even invited his sons on the set to see radiation spikes on a Geiger counter. (laughs) Come see this. You can measure how quickly you're dying. Do you know a lot about America's history with radian? No. Oh, my dude. Okay. Historical lesson time. So, for a really long time, like a really long time, people actually thought that radian was good for you. They would spike water with it, and people would drink radian water, and then everybody got cancer and died like 30 years later. And then they realized, ah, fuck! Poison! Poison is this! (laughs) (laughs) Shit! I was wondering why my jaw fell off. I'm the hills have eyes now! Uh, 13 weeks of breathing in the dust and drinking from local streams, just pumping radiation into their body. In belated, yeah, that's good radian. Just trying to make this a pleasant listening experience for one You know, one water and only tastes good when it glows in the dark. Howard Hughes later paid for 60 tons of the radioactive dirt to be shipped back to, RO, to RKO Studios so that they could do reshoots on radioactive dirt. Oh, my God. Tom, everyone got cancer. <laughs> oh, so this is, I did John Wayne die of cancer? I'll tell you right now. But he wasn't the first to go. The filmmakers knew about the nuclear test, but the federal government reassured residents that, hey, you're going to be fine. We're the government. Bay of what? I don't know what you're talking about. That hasn't happened yet. It's okay. We're making this great new thing called cocaine. It'll fix you right up. Director Powell died of cancer in January 63, seven years after the film's release. Armin Darius, one of the actors, was diagnosed with kidney cancer in 1960 and committed suicide three years later after he learned it would become terminal. Susan Hayward, John Wayne, and Moorhead, another actor, all died of cancer in the 70s. Hoyt died of lung cancer in 1991. Skeptics point to other factors, such as the wide use of tobacco. Wayne and Moore, in particular, were heavy smokers, and Wayne himself had lung cancer because he was smoking six packs a day. Jesus, God. The the cast and crew totaled 220 people. Tom, by 1980, how many of them had cancer and how many of them died? It's a a time for a favorite game. Numbers are bummers. I'm going to say 180 uh, were diagnosed thereabouts. And of that, 120 were dead. You are shooting for the moon, my friend. 91 developed some form of cancer. Only 46 died. But Tom... This was by 1980, so who knows what the number is now. Yeah. I think they might all be dead. This movie was released literally 60 years ago. <laughs> well, I'm glad I, I'm, I'm glad the number was wrong in this yeah. case. Yeah, no, it yeah. wasn't that bad. Uh, several of Wayne and Hayward's relatives also had skin uh, cancer scares after visiting the set. Michael Wayne developed skin cancer. His brother Patrick had a tumor removed, and Hayward's son Tim had a benign tumor removed as well. And then basically a doctor at the University of Utah was like, hey, uh, I think there might be a connection between all the cast dying and the radioactive Chernobyl they were just filming in. And they're like, Chernobyl, what are you talking about? He goes, he hasn't happened yet. You're going to love it, but yeah. it won't. Three Mile Island? Three Mile Island. That hasn't happened yet either. Three Mile Island hasn't happened yet. Fukushima? Sorry, sorry. I'm Doctor, I'm doctor Who's depressing brother, Doctor Y. I'm Doctor Nostradamus. It's been a pleasure <laughs> treating you. It's been a pleasure pointing out your obvious cancer. You should get that left ball checked out. I felt a lump there. Oh, I didn't feel a lump, but I felt it in the future. You know what that means. 
John Wayne would later pass in 1979. Uh, before his death in 1979, he became more philosophical about the whole ordeal. And the moral of the conqueror was far simpler. And he said, don't make an ass of yourself trying to play parts that you are not suited for. Anyways, that's a story about the movie that killed John Wayne. John Wayne might have John Wayne might have been a racist. I learned that during the story, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, he almost certainly was. Uh, it's it's hard. It was hard not to be in that time, which is not an excuse or a justification. I think I said earlier, uh, a historical answer is not a yeah. moral one. And I liked your. It's racist, but no, no, no. It's racist and. Yeah, because there was that thing that bernie sanders said a while back where he said you know we have to focus on uh you know race but we also have to focus on class and and a lot of people said well when you say but you you treat them as though they're not equivalent as though one is more important than the other and i i think that's especially important when it comes to general criticism of things especially when you think about old movies like this, where... Actually, I forgot to do this. Can you quickly Google John Wayne Genghis Khan? Because I want you to see the makeup. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Oh, John, this look does not... <laughs> You're not working this look. Um, but yeah, I think it's perfectly fine to enjoy old movies like this that were uh, built on and perpetuated a lot of gross racism. Because there are qualities to them that are good. But when you treat treat one is more important than the other, when you when you look at it as though it's not a a playing field of, and it's not a level playing field either, as, as though it's not some sort of aggregate of you know influences culture, etc. That's that's when you fail as as a critic because because you can look at a thing and say this movie has this brilliant moment in it and this really great writing. And there's some really whack racist shit in it and form your opinion from there and allow everybody else to form their opinion from there. I think butt criticism, butt criticism, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm 12 years old, <laughs> but criticism uh, is I understand why people think in terms of butt criticism in terms of butts. But I think uh, criticizing in terms of ands is uh, more useful and effective. So those are my thoughts i think those are good thoughts all right that i mean i'm just flabbergasted that this film exists and also killed john wayne <laughs> yeah that's crazy all right liam it's time for everybody's least favorite part of the podcast you know you don't we don't like doing this and you don't like listening to it but we gotta get that sweet sweet podcast money you know all that money this week liam we're sponsored by the Hamsung Nebula. Fuck off. Oh, boy. <laughs> Liam. Pork. In this cyber insecure mm -hmm. age, mm -hmm. having a phone is a real threat. We just talked about radioactivity. You know, we sleep with our phones by our heads. We put them on our faces all the time. I stick them up my ass. Like, it's, it's, it's what... F there, are, there are little batteries that irradiate. Yeah, and then you... And you toggle the vibrator back and forth to simulate your prostate. But, fortunately, Hamsung has a solution for you, and it's their new phone. They know nothing about making phones. But they know a good mortadella. Yeah. And a good capicole. Oh, yeah. Hamsung, and here's the thing. 
originally they were not a phone company. They were they raised pigs and they didn't kill them. They just raised pigs Well, they were truffle farmers and sung. And they sang songs to the pigs uh, to make sure that they grew into strong and powerful boys. <laughs> and then they were like, we're not making any money because we have a bunch of beautiful and very strong muscular pigs. Muscular boars. Tusks as far as Fleetwood Mac. Sinewy pigs. Oh, I love a good sinewy ham. Yeah. But we need to we need to make some you know some of that money off of this uh, off of whatever we do so you know we're gonna we're gonna get into the phone game everybody likes a good uh, space you've heard of ham off the phone well this is ham on a phone guys how am I not a famous comedy writer yet enter the code medium majors and you'll get some pancetta uh, yeah it comes it comes with a broken touchscreen. That that works only half the time. You can only store five contacts at once, and it will not be able to reach nine one one. No, it can't. It's also not so much a phone as it is like phone parts in a slab of raw meat. Yep. So make sure you wash your hands after every use. Enter media majors for a free uh bag of <laughs> free bag of hand cleanser <laughs> jelly. You mean hand sanitizer? I like calling it cleanser jelly. Can we be sponsored by cleanser jelly? <laughs> yeah. Enter the code meeting majors and they'll send you a Ziploc baggie full of cleanser oh jelly. My God. Tom, this has been phony baloney. Tell me a story. What do you know about Hideo Kojima? Uh, you don't want me to answer that question. Can I guess who he is? Yeah. Is he the, um, is he the, 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 he's not the Konami guy, is he? Is he the Konami guy? Is he the dude who was working with Guillermo? It's complicated, Liam. Oh! And that's what this story is about. Hideo Kojima is a Japanese game developer. He's been in the game forever, since like the 80s. Forever. <laughs> forever. 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I wasn't born yet, it might as well have just not existed. His most famous series is Metal Gear. He's been, you know, lead on this for over three decades. The series is published by Konami. He's married to Solid Snake. And at the start of our story, he's, yeah, he's been with them for over three decades. So so this series is Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear, or Metal Gear. Plasma, Metal Gear Liquid, Metal Gear Gas. Yeah. Uh, Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid 2, 3, 4, Peace Walker, and 5. Uh, and, and our story really, really begins in 2014. <gasps> he is riding high, and Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, a Hideo Kojima game, is on the way. On the way. It would be released last year, I think? I feel like it was... Yeah, it was my goatee 2015. Yeah. Uh, and he's just released one of the most hyped-up marketing tactics in... God, I can't even imagine. Years? Are we talking... Are we talking PT? PT. Ah, oh, fuck, I love PT! PT stands for... Playable, playable Trailer! Teaser. T is your Fuck! PT stands for Playable Teaser, the tease being for an upcoming project called Silent Hills. Silent Hill is a long-standing series that is really interesting and, and, and one of the first games that I could remember that really showed people that games can have deep uh, sim symbolism and and be and have its main strength rely on its imagery. And be very scary. Yeah. Very atmospheric. Uh, but Silent Hill was really good, then got really, really, really bad. Then got weirdly okay again, and then got really bad again. Yeah. 
and then PT comes out, and PT was fucking. It's an incredible. Tr- it's so good. For anybody who doesn't know PT, you basically just walk down the same hallway a bunch, uh, but it tweaks your perception and and really it, it, it displaces you in in a way psychologically it psychologically displaces the player in in unique and interesting ways in subversive ways it was everybody was fucking talking about it well one of the it was huge i think to like to just a quick like you had to collect pieces of paper one of the pieces of paper you could only find in the options menu like they were yeah. totally flipping games on its head and kojima loves shit like that and i think it's also important the the name of the game was was they was gonna be for Silent Hills, plural. Yeah. Like the weight that that carried, even to someone like me who's played one Silent Hill game, like I was floored with this trailer. Kojima uh, was working on this with acclaimed director and all around sweet boy Guillermo del Toro. Ah, uh, okay. Let's do some credits. Hellboy, Hellboy Two, Pacific Rim, The Crimson Peak, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, Kronos, Blade Two, uh, anything good with Ron Perlman in it? Uh, and and this project was starring Norman Reedus, who Guillermo del Toro discovered and put in a couple of movies, including Blade Two, where he completely steals the show. Yeah. Um, his most successful project right now is The Walking Dead. That's where everybody knows him. From. He's so successful as that role that they had to write the character he plays, Daryl, into the comic because he wasn't an original comic character. But that's how yeah. good Norman Reedus is. So, so all this is to just show you how high Kojima is riding. He is he is on the tail of this critically and commercially commercially lauded game. So everybody loves Kojima. Everybody. But pride cometh before the fall. In an interview with IGN, Kojima expresses the sentiment that he's done with Metal Gear after the release of The Phantom Pain. Quote, I'm closing the loop on that saga. He says he considers Phantom Pain to be the last Metal Gear, regardless of whether Konami decides to continue with that franchise. At this point, Konami begins to undergo some drastic corporate restructuring. They say that they're going to be taking a mobile-first approach, and will be deprioritizing console development. Listeners, you can't see the expression I'm making, but it's one of pure disgust. Well, yeah, this is wild because they have one of the most lucrative IPs in gaming. They also decide that they want to get into gambling and will eventually go on to make a Metal Gear Pachinko machine. Huh? Yeah. Morale is super low at Konami at this time, according to insider reports. It's yeah, it's a real house on fire situation. Hey, Dave, uh, what you working on? Oh, just lighting my desk on fire. Just lighting it all down. Burning it down. It's that scene from SpongeBob where his brain is on the fritz and, and they're just like throwing papers into the furnace. Well, I heard they spent a lot of money opening a crying room in every Konami office because they just had to keep <laughs> expanding it. It's like, what is this, art school? They make a statement and publicize personnel changes, which is totally normal for corporate restructuring. Mm-hmm. But... Hideo Kojima's name, surprisingly absent. Uh-oh. In March of 2015, Koji- the name Kojima Productions, as well as the, uh, uh, quote-unquote, a Hideo Kojima name add-on on promotional material on box art and from official websites, are removed. Later the very same day, GameSpot releases a report that sheds some light on the trouble in paradise. Konami had restricted access to corporate internet, emails, 
and phone calls for senior Kojima Productions officials. Whoa, that's some 1984 shit right there. This report characterizes Kojima, as well as other senior staff members, as contractors rather than permanent employees of Konami. So, Kojima's gone. A month later, PT is removed from the PlayStation Store. You cannot download it anymore. It it does not... You can't If you delete it from your console, you can't re-download it. Having a PS4 with PT on it is a collector's thing. I'm lucky enough... <gasps> Oh, yeah, if you want to... Playing it when I come over. <laughs> yep. I'll be over soon. Silent Hills is officially canceled. Oh. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is... Heartbroken. Devastated. Brief aside, Guillermo has been trying to break into games... Forever. For, like, uh, like two decades now, I think. Yeah, it's been a And every single project he's worked on has tanked. Uh, the most recent before Silent Hills being a project called Insane, which basically didn't even make it out of the conceptual stage he's so guillermo is very salty about this fucking pretzel rod um recently he tweeted on december 6th of 2016 quote konami canceling silent hills after pt is one of the most moronic things i've ever witnessed yep i agree Oh, this this whole situation was just such a shit show. He also does not have kind things to say about Konami describing the cancellation as a scorched earth approach. And to be honest with you, I'm inclined to agree. And here's why. The Game Awards, that's like that's like the Oscars for gaming. Do they get Whoopi to host it? No, they no actually. They get they get Jeff Keeley who's a m- incredibly competent host. I have nothing but respect for the guy. And Metal Gear Solid 5 is nominated in five categories. Kojima is notably absent from the show. Kiefer Sutherland, who was the voice of Big Boss in Metal Gear Solid 5, accepts the two awards that the game goes on to win on his behalf. After the presentation of the award, presenter Jeff Keighley goes off script. Thank you very much, uh, Kiefer, for accepting that award. And uh, as you noticed, uh, Hideo Kojima is not here with us uh, tonight. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. Mr. Kojima had every intention of uh, being with us tonight, uh, but unfortunately he was uh, informed by a lawyer representing Konami uh, just recently that uh, he would uh, not be allowed to uh, travel to uh, tonight's awards ceremony to uh, accept um, any awards. It's uh, he's still under an employment contract, and it's uh, it's disappointing, and it's yeah, it's inconceivable uh, yeah. to me wow. that a, an artist like Hideo would not be allowed to come here and celebrate with his peers and uh, his fellow uh, teammates uh, such an incredible game as Metal Gear Solid Five. But that's the situation we're in. Uh, Hideo uh, is in Tokyo right now watching the show, um, so we want we want you to know, Hideo, that we're thinking of you. This is some fucking punk rock shit right here. And um, we miss you. We hope to see you at the Game Awards 2016. Wow, that's insane. That is so fucked up of Konami. I have so much respect for Jeff Keighley for doing that. For for I mean, he's clearly very nervous, and he's really putting his professional reputation on the line doing that, uh, going off script, challenging a major publisher to defend somebody who he considers a friend. And especially being a Games Award host, you have to prove like you have a good relationship with publishers and that you're not gonna pull some shit like that all the time and you know like yeah like i have a ton of respect for 
him having the guts to do that. Not only do I have respect for him doing that, I have respect for the way he did it. What I really liked about that whole thing was that um, Jeff Keighley was able to talk about Kojima, Hideo Kojima, and it felt like a way where he's like, you know, I'm going to take a, a stance against what Konami did, but I'm going to respectfully do it. So, wow, that was that was really cool to watch, actually. Sorry to yeah. dork out about it, but god damn. Can yeah. you imagine? Wow, your game gets nominated in five fucking categories. Five! And you win two of them. And you win! Holy fucking shit, you win! And your company is like, nah, dog. Get away from us. We want to work on cell phone games. Candy Crush 2. Also, fun fun fact about that, when the crowd starts to boo midway through, which was, like, fucking great, Gears of War designer Cliff Blazinski takes credit for start, starting the boos, <laughs> which is hilarious and makes so much sense that the guy who is responsible for Gears of War was, like, the boo kid. Cool. On December 15th, 2015, Hideo Kojima's departure from Konami is made official. But, Tom, Tom, that's the day we're recording this. Oh, fuck. I didn't even plan Tom. for that shit. Holy shit! The the reason why actually comes to light later. Uh, in an interview with the composer of Metal Gear Solid Five, a woman by the name of Rika uh, Muranaka, sorry if I'm getting the pronunciation wrong, uh, she says that the reason Konami fired Kojima was that he was simply too expensive. Not that he was demanding too much salary. Clayton Daly, speaking for Rika Muranaka, his interpretation of what she said, says, quote, The main reason for the falling out, at least in Rika's opinion, was that Kojima gets paid a salary and doesn't make any profit share on the game. He gets paid a certain amount no matter what, and what he was spending and he was spending so much money and delaying the project and adding all these features and making sure the game was the biggest and best thing it could be, and Konami wasn't happy with that because delaying has no effect on him. He was spending the budget on this and that and upgrading the Fox engine and then delaying further because the engine wasn't ready. And Konami wasn't happy with that because he gets his salary and he takes a more traditional, quote unquote, Japanese man approach by not taking a profit share. So in doing that, he gets a little more than a game creator would, but doesn't take bonuses from the game selling well. Yes, in her eyes, Kojima's a fantastic creator and probably the best creator of his time, but he doesn't have a strong business sense like Konami would like him to have. Where instead of, for example, cutting corners by lowering foliage resolution, he wants to make sure everything looks as good and as polished as possible. So basically, the issue was that he was just kind of hemorrhaging money a little bit. Yeah, exactly. He wanted to put the most man hours in this game as possible to make sure it was the most polished experience that he wanted. So, December 15th, his departure is made official. The next day, it is announced that his new development company, Kojima Productions, has entered into a partnership with Sony to develop a console-exclusive title for the PS4. And for about half of a year, all's quiet on the Western front. Yeah, for a half of a year, all our hopes are being rebuilt. And then Tom dropped that shoe at Sony's press conference, E3 2016, Andrew House president and global ceo of sony interactive Ent entertainment asks the crowd and millions of viewers to join him in welcoming one of the most creative talents in the history of gaming lights dim curtains rise and hideo kojima descends on a ramp of light what in the actual fuck
is happening to us. Oh, look at my sweet little guy wearing a shirt with a fucking a suit jacket. Hello? Hello, everyone. I'm back. So the crowd goes nuts. I watched this live. I went fucking crazy. I screamed so loud. I heard the I like disturbed the dogs, the neighbors' dogs. Fucking wild and crazy guys. Cue the trailer for his next game, his upcoming game, Death Stranding, starring guess who? Norman Reedus. Norman fucking Reedus. Is it the one where you're on the beach and there's like babies everywhere? Yep. Then during this year's Game Awards, Jeff Keighley gets his wish. The Game Awards is a massive undertaking, and this year it was particularly challenging to pull everyone together to make tonight happen. But whenever I was in doubt, what kept me going was a belief that we had to be back on the same stage as last year to give one man a moment he was robbed of. Whoa. Of course, I am talking about Hideo Kojima, the creator of Metal Gear Solid, and tonight's industry icon. Kojima, Kojima, Kojima. It's gonna get loud, Hideo. He is here, and we're so happy. So I couldn't start the show without getting this over. Uh, we often talk about great games on our stage, but for a minute, I wanna talk about a great man behind those games. Last year, Hideo Kojima's world was turned upside down when he left Konami after the completion of Metal Gear Solid V. We all have tough times to go through, but the true test of one's character comes in how we react to those moments we don't control. When judgments are made or when decisions are rendered upon us by others that we sometimes can't comprehend. I think what happened to Hideo Kojima last year was a tragedy, but he never complained. He just sat in an isolated room for months, locked, looked inside himself, and focused on his art. He hoped that his love of entertaining us would carry him through the darkest days of his career, and we thank him for all that he went through. Well, He's a true fucking artist, man. You know, when I've questioned things in my own life over the past few years, I've drawn strength from seeing firsthand how Hideo dealt with this inflection point of his life. He is one of the most principled, loyal, and ethical men I have ever met. And I'm just so honored to call you a friend above everything else, Hideo. Aw, Keely. Now, you big this trophy right here, I gotta tell you about this, because for most of the past year, I've tried very unsuccessfully to give Hideo the award he rightfully won last year for Metal Gear Solid V keep talking to him and his producer Ken, and it's like, like, I can't get this to him. I first offered to ship it to him, but I couldn't get the address of his new studio. Then I said I'd drive this myself out to Las Vegas to personally hand to him when I saw him in February, and he politely declined that. And I soon found out why. He is such a principled person that eventually word came back to me that Hideo just said, Jeff, 
I can't have that blood on my hands. He had to move on. And today, Hideo is rebuilding his life and his studio with our support. Let this guy host the fucking Oscars. And like Snake said in MGS, Hideo knows that a strong man doesn't need to read his future, he makes his own. Hideo, tonight it is finally time to give you one of these. You're one of the most deserving men to have one. You've always been there for me, and you have never disappointed me. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our industry icon, Mr. Hideo Kojima. He's accepting the award. He's just been announced. He's walking up. Oh, man. Ah, oh, he's so cool. Hey, this is great. Ah, oh, come here, give me a hug. I love it. Last year, I thought I lost everything, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I didn't lose anything. Uh, thanks to all all of you. I thank you all for your support. I love you, Jeff, oh. and Game oh. Awards. Oh. Uh, oh, I love games. I love this world. I really love you all from my heart. Thank you. Thank you, Kojima. Thank you, oh, that was awesome. Oh, that was wonderful. Do you, do you see, like, literally, I watched that video and I just started to cry. How could you not? He's just like, I thought I lost everything. You guys proved that I didn't. Thank you. Well, because first it opens up with Jeff Keighley, like, being just, like, an awesome being dude. being great. Like, you were robbed, and then he gets choked up being like, Hideo Kojima, I am honored to call him a friend. And then he sings these, like, oh, I'm getting a little yeah. choked up it's, right now. it's a great moment, especially given the context of everything. Because, like, he, I mean, listen, he was going to be fine. But he was yeah. able to keep doing what he loves without having to sacrifice his principles. And at the end of the day, isn't that what we all want to do? Yeah. And then Kojima gets up there, and he, give, and he gives Jeff the great hug, an award in between them. But it's yeah. not the center of the hug. And he gives this speech, out, and he says, I love you, Jeff, which is... <sighs> a powerful thing to do. Yeah. is is. There's been some speculation as to whether or not Hideo Kojima is gay. Couldn't give two shits. I don't... I, I He tweeted about it in 2013. He says he's not. Um, And also, it's his fucking business. I, I think that's just sort of, like, homophobia being pushed onto strong male friendship society really hates it when another man tells another man he loves him yeah. without any actual eros or romanticism in it tom i love you yeah i love you too liam see guys it's fucking easy yeah to, to be fair though we suck each other's dicks all the time oh, all the time oh yeah hey grandma i don't know if you're <laughs> listening to this hey tom's grand grand ah <laughs> oh boy. I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. Is something I, say to Tom. Uh, I wanted to go grosser, but I can't. 
can't because I know exactly how to make Liam bust a nut. Yeah, it's not hard. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Kideo Kojima tells Jeff that he says, "I love you, Jeff." It is. It is such a beautiful moment on a professional and personal level because Jeff is clearly somebody who cares very deeply for Hideo Kojima and and Kojima to him and they share this very personal uh, bonding moment uh, they, they get to play that, that professional role as well where it's like Hideo you deserve this we honor you congratulations that's amazing that's amazing I think it's I think it's beautiful. It is. You are correct, sir. And to add the cherry on top, because this is where our story comes to a close. <laughs> well, first of all, Guillermo del Toro <laughs> tweets during <laughs> the presentation in all caps, fuck Konami. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so Guillermo. So good. Uh, I love you, Guillermo. And then Hideo Kojima gets to show off a second trailer for his game Death Stranding, this time featuring his friend and again colleague Guillermo del Toro. Oh my god, Tom. Death Stranding has yet to have an official release date, but Kojima is back on top. That was amazing. That was a great story. Holy shit. Right? Oh man. All right, let's get to the plugs so we could just wrap this golden sun leaf where it needs to be wrapped. Go first. You you had a big thing happen today. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I had a freelance pitch published today on the website Wit Exhibit. Uh, it's called On Personal Growth and Exposure via Twitter. Go read it. Speaking of Twitter, why don't you follow your media majors hosts at their Twitters and follow the podcast's Twitter? Medium at Media Majors Cast. Our personal Twitters are in the bio. Yep. Uh, speaking of uh, marginalized folks, you can pitch us if you are or uh, not just marginalized. Anybody can pitch us, but preference will be given to women, people of color, LGBTQ plus. If you have a story in major that's that has to do with major media and you want to tell it pitch us send us an email media majors podcast at gmail.com you can dm us you can there's so much there's so many ways to get in contact with us we'd love for you guys to get in contact with us yeah the parameters are on our website if you go to media majorscast.com and go to the left uh and click the the bar we want to hear your stories that's where we have our uh rules requirements etc we would also we're also still waiting for our i guess we can call it a corrections corner or just like here's some things you missed where if you think that we uh gave some false information if you think that there's a certain part of the story that we didn't maybe a new angle that you think we would uh, be interesting to hear send us that we'll read it and and give you credit of course um and then also if you could like us on itunes write us a review um you know that really helps us and yeah. get itunes to like notice us because they just kind of host us right now yeah we get, don't give two shits about us so make itunes care about us we do good shit on this podcast we're growing but we're small all we all we have right now is word of mouth and any any sort of reviews oh yeah that's right i hate giving people saying uh telling people to review us with no instructions i feel like it's being given an essay prompt with or being told to write an essay with no prompt so if you like us, write 
this is the B movie. Or if I forget. <laughs> Something about the B movie. Both, they both have to do with the B movie. The, if you like us, right, the B movie memes have gone too far. Yep. And if if you don't like us or you have a specific criticism, say the B movie, but every time they, and then your, your criticism, criticism there, it, it gets, gets faster. faster. Yep. Brilliant. Because that'll stay fresh. We'll change it when it doesn't, but I'm seeing more and more of those memes every day now, and I fucking hate it. Uh, other personal stuff I write about games just personally Thomas Lockney Game Informer Destructoid my top 10 games of 2016 is out Cody and uh, Chaboy explains just google that <laughs> and it's the first two things that come up I have fucking fantastic SEL and that son of a gun and those are my plugs Liam uh, not that much to plug here uh, Sore Dinosaur I make weird trip hop go listen to it you'll like it if you're into drugs uh, boys night not really doing anything right now because we're all working on shit but uh, I pop up in some of Luke Strickler's vids every once in a while so go check him out it's part of boys night has his own YouTube channel um I don't know I'd be on Facebook I'd love to talk to you guys seriously Liam Senior I think I, the, my picture on Facebook is just like me and my dad hanging out near some weird super computers so if you see that add me up hell yeah well thank you so so much yes thank you for listening guys we really fucking appreciate it please contact us we'd love to get in touch with with listeners yeah uh you'll realize how fucking gooberish we are in real life <laughs> if the podcast hasn't fucking proven it and as always tom take it away we'll be there for you hello hello everyone i'm back <laughs> <laughs>